The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Money Movers. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Sarah Eisen, live on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Today, former Fed official, current Dreyfus and Mellon chief economist Vincent Reinhardt on why investors will be disappointed with the messaging from the FOMC this week. Then, how does the Fed's rate path impact alternative investments? With nearly $400 billion in assets under management, Aries Management's Mike Arrighetti will help us answer that question. And finally, the market outlook for 24 with Canner's uh, Howard Lutnick. Why he says the chair will soon, quote, bow to reality. Right now, though, in the markets, got a little climb higher here from where we started. The S&P 500 firmer. The Nasdaq's gone positive as well. It wasn't earlier this morning. It's up a quarter of 1%. Information technology is one of the winning groups today. Energy's lagging. The 10-year Treasury note yield, 422. So a little bit firmer as prices sell off. Topping the tape for us this morning is the reaction to CPI and what cooling inflation means for a potential pivot to interest rate cuts from the Fed. In the last hour, just now, NEC Director Lael Brainerd reiterating that economic, the economic picture is encouraging, that inflation and labor continue to point to a soft landing. She added there's every reason to believe that growth will continue into next year. Let's bring in CNBC senior markets commentator Mike Santoli. Also, Brainerd and Yellen speaking this morning. Didn't seem too worried about that last mile path from 4% inflation on core to 2% where the Fed wants it to go. They think it's going straight in that direction. Right. Or at least there's nothing that's new that says that we should newly doubt that it's going to be stickier in that direction. You know, I did see Morgan Stanley looking at today's CPI number, projecting ahead to what it means for PCE, which the Fed looks at. And maybe there's a slight downside to current consensus, basically on target. Um, And I think that what they can latch on to, Yellen, Brainerd, all the rest, is that we've had this improvement in inflation, mostly from supply side effects supply chain, energy prices, and also labor supply, right? We have the unemployment rate going up, and it's mostly because of new entrants. It's not about a decline in absolute number of employed people. I guess all that stuff gives you some encouragement. Can't take it for granted. Shelter inflation looks like it's a little stubborn right now. Um, some other services inflation still not cooperating. So, again, you don't just put it in the bag. But, uh, but at this point, we're ahead of where the Fed said we were going to be at this moment in terms of progress on inflation. You mentioned Morgan Stanley. Goldman also got away from PPI, but they do see core PCE in November 0.14. Right. We'd like that. Yes, I think Morgan Stanley's 0.12 something. So it's it's in that zone uh, at this point. And, you know, in terms of what the Fed says about it, I don't think anybody actually expects them to start handicapping rate cuts. So therefore, if you say, you know what, he's not going to come out and promise rate cuts, that's not going to surprise anybody. I mean, let's keep in mind, if you go by what the Fed officials have on record, they would be hiking tomorrow. Right. Because they said there'd be one more hike this year. It's not going to happen. So I think the market is sort of just extrapolating. Maybe it's too locked in to the disinflation soft landing scenario at the very moment in the short term as we get overbought in the indexes. But uh, nothing is really knocking that view. off. It, it feels like if we don't lose the trend on inflation falling right. and growth 
slowing but not into recession, the market can rally. Exactly. So that's the that's the, the comfortable that, combination. Get in there. And again, right. And, and then you get to a point where who knows if you're in sight of the old highs. I mean, we already are four percent from the old highs, and you start to talk about valuation again. I think any economic data that says current and next quarter earnings estimates are in the ballpark is probably okay uh, for the market, even though we might be kind of winding ourselves up for some kind of little volatility storm in January. Some of the stuff you look at, um, nothing really alarming, but uh, just in terms of how everybody is sort of cycling in uh, and, and getting longer. Uh, yeah, we'll see how the election expectation also yeah. fits into that in the first half. Mike, thanks. Uh, for more on November CPI and what to expect from the Fed tomorrow as the meeting kicks off, let's bring in Dreyfus and Mellon, Chief Economist Vincent Reinhart. Vince, great to have you. Uh, you're pretty plain in your report. You say the Fed will remain restrictive until it sees the results it wants, and that is inflation returning to goal. It doesn't sound like you think they were, they're keen to stop any time before that. I hope you haven't joined Team Transitory, Carl. Uh, you know, the plain fact is that they've had a, a very simple policy design. You don't know what the equilibrium real rate is. Put it someplace that's restrictive and wait. Or in Chair Powell's words, until you see it in its works. Inflation doesn't have to be at two. Indeed, they'll, they'll pivot before it gets to two. But they have to be confident it's returning to two. And you can't be confident it's returning to two when core inflation is 4%. Then what do we make of comments from Waller and actually today by Yellen herself uh, saying that you can cut rates and remain as restrictive, assuming inflation continues to come down? Uh, the, the key to their forecasting is not giving a time frame. Uh, perhaps Governor Waller thinks it's perfectly appropriate to cut rates, say, in September. Ah, that's our forecast. Uh, you know, the fact is that if they keep the funds rate about where it is, five and a quarter percent in nominal terms, it will get more restrictive next year as inflation moves slowly back to goal. So they are right. Policy is going to get more restrictive on the current glide path if the nominal funds rates unchanged. Problem is, policy is such a blunt tool. What would happen to financial markets if the Fed did a slight nudging down of rates to get the right real rate. Keep it simple. Put the funds rate on a plateau, leave it there until you're sure, then start cutting. So when, when, is, when is it your expectation that that will happen? Uh, uh, probably in September. September, that's so a that's a lot later. Away. Yeah. Well, so you it, think the market's going to be disappointed by all that? I think the market's going to be disappointed. Not so much tomorrow. You haven't built in a lot of expectations. I'm not sure there's much the Fed could say to uh, uh, make market participants even more confident when they're reading the data that where, where, where they're reading. In fact, the FOMC will be uh, you know, modestly hawkish. They'll, they'll take out a dot. So they'll have to true up the dot plot to say they're not tightening this year. Uh, but they'll still have only a very gradual ease next year. Uh, and Powell will probably tell you that they're not even thinking about rate cuts. But over time, um, as the data unfold, um, market participants will see inflation is inertial. That last mile is hard and it just takes a while. 
When you think of the areas, Vince, that, that could disappoint the market in a hawkish sense, uh, just from the data, uh, inflation expectations, oil, for example, shelter, even with the long lag, what do you think is, is the prime suspect if things were to turn bad? Uh, I don't think they turn bad. They just don't turn as good as quickly as market participants uh, want. What would be bad for equity markets? Three more CPI reports like this morning, i.e. shelter still there, core core inflation is still stubborn. It's just not going away. Uh, second thing, obviously, the volatile uh, uh, components go in, the, go in the opposite way to Fed's goal, i.e. energy. Uh, prices uh, uh, backing up. We've had the favorable headwinds to the disinflation process uh, from uh, uh, goods prices, commodity prices uh, really being a disinflationary force. If that stops, then that'll just add to the slow inertial <laughs> decline in service prices. Yeah, keep knocking on the door and no answer. We'll see what the next few months yeah. uh, bring. Vince, thanks so much. Great. Thanks for kicking off the hour. Vincent Reinhardt. Uh, thank you. Hawkish Vince Reinhardt. Yeah, in opposition to what we just heard from Brainerd. We're getting Boeing November orders and deliveries. Phil LeBeau has that for us. Phil. Uh, Sarah, for the month of November, uh, Boeing delivered or logged orders, I should say, for 104 airplanes. Year to date, it now has almost 950 orders. As you take a look at the uh, shares of Boeing now tickling $250 for the first time since late 2020. Deliveries, 56 planes last month, the bulk of those being 737 maxes. Year to date, 461. The backlog standing at 5,324 planes. Guys, we are gradually seeing that backlog increase even as Boeing prepares to increase production of the 737 MAX. That's going to start in the first quarter of next year. And remember, by the end of this year, they're going to gradually increase the production of the Dreamliner. So those are two factors behind this run in Boeing shares that, uh, I mean, they've been on a tear over the last uh, seven, eight weeks, uh, now close to $250. Guys, back to you. All right, Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau, and up about half a percent right now. Up next, Aries Management runs close to $400 billion in assets. CEO Mike Arrighetti joins us on opportunities in the credit market and how the potential for rate cuts could impact alternative investments. We will get to Oracle. Right now, the top laggard on the S&P after that revenue miss. Uh, Dow's up 101. Money Movers continues after this. haven't heard about the McCrispy yet? Well then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. 
Shares of Oracle getting dinged today as results uh, disappoint the street. Revenue misses across multiple segments, including services and cloud. As a result, B of A, Goldman, UBS all trimmed their targets today. If you're looking for the contrarian take, it's probably Deutsche reiterating as a buy. Still bullish on the growth story. Price target there up to 135. Uh, but uh, even Jim uh, this morning, Sarah, disappointed in at least this month's print. Yeah, this, this is a pretty ugly reaction, too. Well, from today's inflation report to tomorrow's Fed meeting, investors are searching for signs of when rate cuts, rate cuts might start and why. But how that might impact the booming private credit market, which has benefited from higher rates? Let's find out. Our money mover of the hours, Aries Management Corporation president, co-founder and CEO Mike Arigetti. Aries has $395 billion under management. Mike, welcome back. It's good to see you. It's good to be here. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. So is there an impact from this, this shifting dynamic of rate hikes? to pricing and rate cuts? You know, it's I think the market perceives that private credit is attractive because rates are higher, and I think that is part of it, right? Obviously, it's a floating rate instrument. We benefit when base rates go up, but if you talk to the, ins- the institutional investors who largely buy private credit, what they're really buying is the premium to the liquid market. So even when rates start to move down, I don't think you're going to see any change in demand for private credit. What if there's a downturn? How does your portfolio perform? Well, the good news is now private credit's been around for 30 years. So we've been through Asian financial crisis, long-term capital, dot-com, you know, COVID, GFC. So it's been tested. Um, If you look at the positioning of private credit portfolios today, generally speaking, they're more conservatively positioned relative to any other time in the asset class's history. So anytime we have a downturn, obviously there's a risk of increased default or loss, but I actually think relative to historical performance, it should be better. One argument from private markets lately, Apollo's a good example, Mm -hmm. is uh, the idea that you can manage the illiquidity and that because public markets have become so indexed, it's hard to generate alpha. Is that fair? A hundred percent. There's two things to unpack there. One, if you look at liquid credit markets, any liquid investor is obviously going to be benchmarked or benchmark hugging, which means that by definition, you're going to be investing in industries that tend to be more cyclical. And people don't really like to unpack this, but if you go back in every historical crisis, there are five or six industries that make up the bulk of, of loss and default. So just through industry avoidance in the private markets, you could, you could outperform. But two, which is important, if you think about liquid markets, it's actually adverse to value, right? So if you're an owner of a company and somebody can come in and buy a loan or a bond at a discount to par, that can be really disruptive. In the private markets, which I think is what you're referring to, it's a bilateral relationship. So everyone is aligned to seeing the company perform and do better. And I actually think that that results in better credit performance. So because of all this, it's gotten very competitive in your space, Yes yes and no. Um, I think more people are trying to come into the space because it's attractive and there's investor demand and there's client appetite, meaning there's there's demand for credit. But if you look at private credit, it's actually a fairly concentrated industry. So about half of the AUM that gets raised and deployed is with the top 10 managers. And I think what we've seen is with each cycle, that consolidation trend is actually increasing. So we're not really perceiving it as more competitive, even though there are a lot of people that are raising their hands. Because I was going to say, if it is more competitive, does that make it harder to get better deals? Does that make it harder to hold the line on you know, offering incentives and deal structure? Most markets are efficient. Even the private illiquid markets, there's going to be some level of efficiency. So over time, 
spreads come down, uh, you know, transaction structures get more, you know, commoditized. But the way I would think about it is you drive value in the private markets through unique origination, through scale, size of your capital, flexibility. Um, and so when you think about somebody like us who has $300 billion of private credit and $100 billion of uninvested, if there's a large deal for a high quality company or a high quality sponsor or a high quality asset for that matter, there just aren't that many people that can participate in that market. So in some you know, counterintuitive way, at least in the larger part of the market, it's less competitive. What do we make of legacy bank CEOs who bemoan the bubble, they say, growing yeah. in private credit, and then start private credit desks of their own? <laughs> it's so funny. So I've been, I've been doing this for 30 years. I started my career in banks. And I still don't really understand this because private credit is just direct loans. And if you actually look at the structure of our markets, there are $3 trillion of CNI loans in the banking system. There are another $9 trillion of real estate loans and consumer loans. So when you take a loan to a good company or a good asset from a bank to a non-bank, still the same, still the same asset. So this idea that the banks aren't in private credit, I think, is a little bit of a you know, misnomer. Uh, so is it them just losing market share on loans? I don't. I actually don't know. I mean, you're going to have to. You're going to have to ask them because they're last also upset that you don't get regulated in the same well, we way. Are, we're very regulated. We're just not Fed regulated. And so one of the things that I think is again part of this headline, and it's been happening for the last 15 years, by the way, if you're 10 times levered or 15 times levered, and you have government guarantees, explicit or implicit, and you have an asset liability mismatch between your deposits and your liabilities. You, you should be heavily regulated, right? That's a financial structure that requires regulation. If you're unlevered or modestly levered and you have a bilateral relationship between an institutional investor that's sophisticated and a manager, that probably has a different set of risks in it. So this idea of us not being regulated, again, is, is not true. We're heavily regulated by the SEC, by CFTC, by FINRA. You know, it's it just we're not, we're not Fed regulated because we're, we have a completely different financial structure. So. It's, it's an interesting thing. Uh, they Sounds may like be... you're gearing up to make that argument. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone's doing okay. Obviously, at the end of the day, we just want to get capital into the economy to the companies that need it. And if it comes from us or the banks, you know, so, so be it. I, I want to ask about your stock price for a moment because it's up 60% this year. I think it's up a few hundred percent over the yeah. last few years. It's been a remarkable performer. What, what moves the stock on a given basis? Is it because private credit has boomed? I think, I think it's first, if you go top down, it's just a secular uh, expression on the growth in alts, mm -hmm. right? So if you just look at the alternative asset business, most of the alt managers have performed admirably. I think we've outperformed because we're over-indexed to the private credit markets globally. And obviously, given the growth in that market and the rate overlay, that's, that's a good place to be. Um, and so we've been very uh, clear with our guidance in terms of the predictability and stability of our growth. And I think in the public markets, that matters. So a lot of the historical volatility that you saw in alts around the PE-centric or the balance sheet heavy models, we've kind of pulled that out. So when you look at the income stream, it's just been very predictable in terms of its growth profile, and I think people are paying for that. Finally, you mentioned the economy. We'd spent all morning talking about CPI, soft landing, hard landing, what have you. Are you looking for the economy to change in tone or direction next year? Um, 
Yeah, look, we, we have investments in probably 3,000 middle market companies. Um, and despite the fact that people have been anxious and calling for a recession, we have not been saying that. So the last time that we were here together, we were pretty clear that what we're seeing in our portfolios strong. is strong. And it's still the same. So now that we're at the end of the hiking cycle, we're seeing inflation moderate. Um, I would expect that the economy will power through. Uh, our pipelines are picking up. So as we've also talked about, now that rates have stabilized and people can actually get their arms around the forward earnings picture a little bit better, we're seeing transactions start to pick up. So I'm actually optimistic both for the economy and for the, the, the deal environment. M&A, you're seeing M&A pick up. For sure. Hmm. So, so firmly soft landing, it sounds like. That's yeah. where I am. Yeah. yeah, that's where I am. Well, Mike, thank you very much for coming on. Always good to be here. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, good to get an update on, on your thinking. Mike Arigetti, CEO of Aries. Thank you. Appreciate it. Later on this hour, Airbnb gets cut to sell over at Barclays. We'll talk to the analysts behind that call. Some concerns around margins, frustration over fees and focus. Plus, miss part of the show? Don't forget to listen and subscribe to the Money Movers podcast, available wherever you listen to podcasts. We're back after a quick break with the Dow up 100 points. You haven't heard about the McCrispy yet? Well then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard. Want to get a check on the markets with some new highs across the board. The Dow at January 2022 highs. S&P 500 at the highest since March of 22. NASDAQ hitting its highest level since April of 22. So we're going into our seventh week of gains here for the overall stock market, fueled by, in part, better economic data, suggesting that the economy might be slowing but not into a recession, and better inflation data. Today's numbers pretty much in line with expectations, a little bit firmer on the on the overall month-to-month number, but perceived as the market generally is continuing the disinflation theme that the Fed wants to see ahead of a big meeting tomorrow. European markets, let's hit that now at the close. Mixed this morning as investors digest the November CPI number. The FTSE hanging on to slight gains this morning as the Bank of England reports UK wage growth fell by 50 basis points in October. That was good news for them. European uh, economic sentiment, Eurozone sentiment, also surprising to the upside across the rest of the continent, reaching its highest level since February. This ahead of Super Thursday, the ECB, Bank of England, Swiss National Bank, and Norway Central Bank will all be meeting. Policymakers are all expected to hold rates steady. There's some skepticism around Norway, which reigns, which has warned that it could raise rates further. I think the biggest question on central banks this week is the market has been a little bit aggressive in pricing in cuts for next year, especially with the Fed, the ECB, and the Swiss National Bank. Will the policymakers start to walk that yeah, back? We talk about our 52-week high. How about all-time highs in Germany and Germany France or close to it? For a while yeah, now. yeah. Uh, Soft landing there too. Yeah, we, we will see. Uh, a couple hours into trading here, Dow is up more than 90 points. Let's get to Bob Bassani, see what's moving. Hey, Bob. Uh, a lot of new highs. Headline CPI up 3.1%. That's the lowest uh, annual increase since March of 2021. Supportive of lower inflation, supportive of the soft landing. And the consumer's holding up very well. And if you're wondering uh, how can you say that, look at Visa. Look at these new highs on the credit card companies. This is a new high uh, for Visa. That's an historic high that you're looking at. Same thing here with MasterCard. It's right here. Trades right next to it. Uh, 
new high there. It's right, not quite a historic high. I don't think 417, but it's near an historic high. Amex, not a new high, but doing very well for the year. So consumers doing very well. Big global industrial stocks are also doing particularly well. Boeing has been one of the great comeback stories I've seen in many, many years. This was $180 six weeks ago. They had great earnings at the end of October. Look at that, $180 to $250. That's an astonishing uh, move here. You're talking about a 30% move in about six weeks. Another big, there's been a number of big industrial names that have been consistent superstars throughout, throughout the year. Uh, Ingersoll Rand, here's another one. This stock has been moving dramatically all year. Uh, it's the biggest industrial compressor manufacturer that's out there. Uh, very well positioned for a sort of global reshoring trends. That's been the big story for them this year. They're very well positioned for that. We've also seen huge moves up uh, in these, all the home builders. Every day I keep putting up new highs with Lennar, for example, new high and the lower interest rates, Pulte, new high, Dior Horton, every single day up here uh, on, on a new high here. Uh, small groups of tech stocks are hitting new highs as well. ServiceNow, services a software, SAAS company, uh, another new high. I've been doing that a lot recently. They had great earnings at the end of October. They were, oh, $540 six weeks ago. Look at that, $713. Again, this is like a 30% rise in six weeks for these stocks. Big, big moves uh, to the upside. Not everybody's participating. We've talked about the, the energy companies, Schlumberger and Halliburton uh, and Exxon. Schlumberger is probably down 8 or 9% uh, this year. But again, this is a positive consumer story because oil and gas prices. So oil was $82 at the start of the year. It went to $95 just a few months ago, and now we're looking at below $70. It's $68 today. So again, it, not great for in, investors in energy stocks, but a good positive consumer story because it moves inflation, the lower oil and gas prices moving inflation in the right direction. So Sarah, we'll see how much the Fed pushes back tomorrow against these rate cuts in 2024. You were just talking about that the market seems yeah. to believe in pretty, 70, uh, pretty severely. Uh, we'll see what the dot plot projections look like. I think you're going to hear Mr. Powell push back very heavily against rate cuts in 2024. All right, Bob, that is the question. Bob Pisani okay. on the floor. Time now for his news update. Pippa Stevens has that for us. Hi, Pippa. Hey, Sarah. George Santos walked into a New York court this morning for a hearing in his criminal fraud case. Federal prosecutors said in a court filing they are negotiating a plea deal with the former congressman. Santos is charged with multiple counts of wire fraud, identity theft, and making false statements. He was expelled from Congress earlier this month. As Ukrainian President Zelensky visits Washington, his country's largest mobile network operator was crippled today by a cyber attack. The CEO of Kyivstar says Russia took down its service and severed internet access for millions. The outage appears to be one of the largest cyber attacks against the civilian communication system to date. And global internet traffic from Elon Musk's Starlink satellites nearly tripled this year, according to a new report. The tech infrastructure firm Cloudflare found traffic grew more than 150% in the U.S. and more than 1,600% in Brazil. The report also found Starlink's traffic grew faster than global internet traffic as a whole. Sarah, back to you. Okay, Pippa, thanks. Cantor Fitzgerald CEO Howard Lutnick is coming up after the break. His outlook for rates and why he says Fed Chair Powell will soon have to bow to reality as we see stocks up across the board now, reaching highs we haven't seen since back in 2022. We'll be right back.
Choice turning its takeover bid of Wyndham into a hostile one today, offering the same deal it did in October, $90 a share, cash and stock, one that Wyndham's board rejected unanimously two months ago. Choice disclosed this morning that it already owns around $110 million of Wyndham stock and will look to shake up the board. While Wyndham remains uh, concerned about the debt burden of the merger, both of those stocks higher or were higher in early trade this morning. Yeah, we talked to the CEO earlier. He's, he's bracing for a fight. But when it comes to what's next for the world economy, our next guest says the next few days of meetings from the Fed, the Bank of England, and the ECB could signal a global shift in restrictive policy, saying it's only a matter of time before Chair Powell, quote, bows to reality and starts hinting at the timing of rate cuts. Joining us here at Post 9, Cantor Fitzgerald CEO, Howard Lutnick. Welcome back, Howard. Good Great to, to see, see you. you both. So what, see what, what reality do you think Chair Powell needs to bow to? Well, I, I just think it's going to be steady Eddie. If you think about it, you know, a lot of people talking about cuts. You have to remember how slow the Fed is. Remember how late they were to the party, right? So what do you think? They're going to be early to this party of cutting? <laughs> Come on, really? Or late in the beginning next. and early at the end? I don't think so. The Fed goes slower than people think. They're going to hold steady. And then they're going to hold steady. And then they're going to Hold steady. I don't think you're going to see real cuts until the economy really needs it. And are we feeling it really needs it? S&Ps, come on, you guys talk about it all day, every day. Does it feel like we need cuts it's today? It's over a year right doesn't now. doesn't feel that way, does it? But you're in real estate and you're, you're in the market, so does it, feel it, does it feel differently there? So real estate, if you own equity in real estate, okay, you know the meaning of the word pain. You know it because let's say you own a building and that building needs to be refinanced, right? You borrowed the money 10 years ago. You got a great rate at those zero interest rates. So good. So good. What happens now? You have to refinance it. Not so good. You can't get the same proceeds. And it's going to wipe out. I think it's going to wipe out $700 billion are going to be defaulted in the next two and a half years. Where, where do you get that number? Okay, that's, that comes from all the research everywhere. I mean, I, I, yeah. I don't know it offhand because, thank goodness, I don't know it offhand. My poor brain right. couldn't handle all these things. But $700 billion will default, okay? And those defaults, and that's where Newmark will have, strangely, a generational win, which is in 2025 when all these buildings start to default, someone needs to sell the buildings, and we're going to be selling the buildings. You know, we just finished, and we're, and we're wrapping up the FDIC sale. Remember... Newmark liquidated the Signature Bank. Mm-hmm. $60 billion portfolio of loans took care of that, closing by the end of the year. Way to go. It's really good for the business. But what's going to happen is they're going to sell buildings, and then when they sell buildings at the new lower price, you can lease buildings at lower prices. So 2025, end of 24, you're going to see real estate services, and Newmark in particular, it's going to come out hot and strong unbelievably exciting. So that's, that's a place that's going to win. That's that's pretty soon. You think this all takes place in the next 12 to 18 months? Oh, yeah. Back into 24, you're going to start seeing vast defaults, vast defaults. And these banks on Basel III, they don't want to own it. Sell it, sell it, sell it. No more kick the can down the road. You can kick the can down the road when you get a little bit of defaults. When there's a wave coming at you, sell, sell, sell. So you're going to see so banks and lenders and selling. pretend doesn't happen this time. It, it happens in the first half of 24, and then all of a sudden you're going to start seeing sell, 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 huge amounts of sales, right? Defaults rising, banks getting rid of it. Banks didn't underwrite it badly. 
right after 0809. They learned their lesson. So these are reasonably underwritten. The banks aren't going to lose money. They're just going to blow them out. And then what happens is the new buyers get it at a much lower price. They can lease it at a much better price. And all of a sudden, the world sort of begins again. But a lot of real Big estate pain. Coming. A lot of it, real estate pain. I mean, it sounds like the size of this. Do you think it could have a systemic impact on the economy? Is it something that the Fed should be worried about? It's a cut for the Fed in a weird way. Right? You got to realize, like, that whole, when all those banks went broke, right, that was a systemic cut, right? Because all that money pulled out of the banks, right? All that lending pulled out, right? So that's like a weird, these are like weird things that yeah, happen, Valley, right? Signature. So what's going to happen is it's just going to keep the Fed steady. As that works through it, there's sort of, you know, there's too much talk of cuts, too much. Well, they're going to have four cuts next year. Really? For us to have four cuts means all day long you two talk about how bad the economy is. Right, think about it. Yeah. For the Fed to cut well, four there, times, how bad must it be? There's a school of thought, Howard, that suggests that it, they want to preserve the soft landing before it turns into recession and bring rates down from what they are calling a restrictive level because inflation's under control. You don't buy that? That's, that's the imaginary world of make-believe. <laughs> the Fed that you and I know, that we talk about all the time, they're now getting ahead of it, planning, setting up the slow, easy landing. Really, what? No, uh, listen, I go to sleep every night, I dream about that kind of stuff, but then when I wake up, okay, when I wake up, that's just not happening, okay? That is not happening. The Fed will only cut when it needs, when we need it. And what's happened is young people, okay, people 40 and under have never seen an interest rate in their whole lives. So they say, oh my God, it's five and a quarter. If you're as old as me, 62, <laughs> right? You remember the 20 years before where 5% was like, it was pretty nice. My first job, right? Rates were- your first mortgage. My, yeah, they were like 17% cutting down. Yes. So what's happening is this world at five and a quarter is fine. We're gonna stay here for quite a long time, which is pretty steady and which is pretty good. So where's fixed income? is going to do really well. All the banks are going to do really well, right? BGC, our, our wholesale financial service company, on fire, said revenue is up 10%, expecting revenues to be up 10% next year, right? And continuing from this year, just fire. Stocks up, I don't know, 50% so far this year. Keeps going to keep going up, right? So banks are going to do well. What's going to do really well? Tech. Tech is going to do really, really well, right? Steady rates. Tech didn't do well when rates were going up, and you guys were talking about it every day. I watched you guys talk about it every day, calling it early, call it, right? Now that rates are steady, they're rocking again. Right. So you got to like tech. What about small caps? U.S. equities at large? U.S. equities continue to, what, creep higher, right? 20% this year. Yep. Right? Remember the beginning of the year? We were not talking 20% yeah. up this year. 20% up this year. The model feels good, doesn't it? It doesn't feel bad here. You know, when you want to talk about rate cuts. But it's cuts, dependent on cuts, which you don't think are happening. They're not, it's not dependent on cuts. Yeah. Today's is not dependent on cuts, okay? The economy feels okay. Everything feels okay. Tech is doing really, really well, right? There's going to be a real estate reckoning, right? We talk about home mortgages. Why are people not selling their houses and home equity is holding up? Because you can't sell, right? I have a 4.5% mortgage. Right? I'm not selling my house. I'm just not selling. Because if I replace it when I buy a new house, seven and a half, get lost. Yeah. So you know what? Remodel. 
remodel. <laughs> little remodeling of the house. So these things are working. All right, so tech, fixed income. These are where you're, you see opportunities. Banks. Banks are going to do well. Cryptos? Okay, so I am a fan of crypto. And, I did not and, know But this. let's be very specific. Bitcoin, just Bitcoin, right? These other coins, they, they're not a thing. All right, they're just not a thing. They're like kind of make-believe, these other things. Maybe Ethereum is okay, but Bitcoin. So every four years, Bitcoin doubles the price of how much work you have to do to get a coin. And if you go look at the history of Bitcoin, every time the doubling happens, it does well. So that and combined with the concept of an ETF in America, mm -hmm. Right now, Bitcoin isn't really for Americans. You know that it's just a speculative thing. It's kind of I call it Tesla stock. <laughs> it's kind of like Tesla stock, right? It's just something to trade. It's not, you know, like why is Tesla Tesla? The answer is because everybody buys it and it goes up. I mean, it's not like the fundamentals of Tesla. Or the why do you like that? Why well, if it's just a speculative trade? Bitcoin. Because or Tesla? I think I think the halving and the way the world works these days. There's a lot of people who are worried about the fact that we run $2 trillion deficits, right? And there's a lot of the world that really wants to buy things. So they want to buy stable coins, right? And I'm a big fan of this stable coin called Tether. Because you do business for them. Well, I, I hold their treasuries, yeah. right? So I keep their treasuries, and, uh, and they have a lot of treasuries. They're over $90 billion now. So I'm a big fan of Tethers. I think they're an excellent, interesting way that if you go to Argentina, Right now, right, you have the new president mm -hmm. of Argentina. Remember, mm -hmm. he said he was going to use the dollar to run the country. You know, the only problem with that is you need some. You need some of your own dollars to run your country in dollars. Like, for us, it's pretty easy. We print them. It's easy for us. We go to the printing press. We have some dollars. They don't have them. So the idea of them doing it in dollars was a really fun thing to say to get elected, but you can't really do it unless you have reserves. And they don't have reserves, so they can't do that. It's but, interesting that you're saying this. Last week, Jamie Dimon said that if he were in the government, he would ban Bitcoin. Well, and not to mention what Munger said about it all overall. Well, okay, once upon a time, right, uh, you know, Charlie Munger had a view, right, and that's a reasonable view which says it has no purpose, okay? It has no fundamental purpose. But things that trade up and down sometimes have a purpose, right? Just think of this. If you're a Russian oligarch, all right, and you were trying to get out of Russia and you were scared to death of Putin and you wanted to get out, what did you do? You bought the world's biggest yacht. Why? Because you figured, if I got to get out of Russia and I don't live in a country, I'll live on a country that's a boat, <laughs> right? It's just, the boat's so big. I live on this boat. And guess what? What did the U.S. do? We just took them. Now, what is the only asset that these people could have held, but no one could take it? And you know what the answer is? Bitcoin. Great. It's, it's, so it's used for illicit, the use of criminal activity. No, to, but expatriate your yeah, assets. To go around yeah. sanctions. Well, I think Bitcoin is that. Like, Bitcoin is uncontrolled, but there's no one you can call. See, Tether, if you have Tether, right, and the and Justice Department calls Tether, they freeze it because there's someone to call. There's no one to call on Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is a weird thing, but it's only Bitcoin is a weird thing. You know, in Ethereum, you can call Joe Lubin. Like, you can call the guy and say, hey, Joe. <laughs> Howard, you really brought it today. Wow. Thank you for They let us go in. long, too. Yeah, yeah. appreciate it. You had a lot, it feels so a lot short. Whenever I'm with you guys, it just feels really short. <laughs> you know what? Always want, leave them wanting more. Howard Lutnick, <laughs> thank you very much. Kenner Fitzgerald, see you.
Coming up next, Barclays calling the top on Airbnb, cutting to underway. The analyst joins us when Money Movers continues. Got this bear call from Barclays grabbing our attention today, cutting Airbnb to sell and Expedia to equal weight as they expect industry spend to fall in line with GDP growth. The analyst behind that call joins us this morning, Barclays' Trevor Young. Trevor, appreciate the time. Uh, I'll keep it a little bit short today, but overall, the thesis sure. here, what's behind it? Yeah, sure. So we see industry growth slowing from here. We're not quite at the point where we see it converging with GDP growth, but we think a lot of the, so to call, uh, revenge travel has started to play out. We think the industry slows from 15% growth this year to about 10%. And in line with that, we actually see alternative accommodations starting to plateau as a percentage of overall lodging spend. We work with our data investment sciences team to look at spend specific to alternative accommodations over the last several years. And we've seen that actually plateau around 20% of overall lodging spend and actually in recent months seen that roll over a little bit in favor of hotels. So that's part of what informs our cautious view on Airbnb. Right. And then the move on, on Expedia suggests this is not just about uh, share shifting around, yes? Yeah, exactly. Expedia has had a great run so far year to date. Frankly, a lot of these names have had a great run. It's specific to Expedia. We just think it's time to step to the sidelines. We're a bit cautious on the potential reacceleration in bookings growth, as well as their goals on margin expansion. We think they may have to lean in on their advertising spend to effectuate that acceleration in growth. Expedia also over indexes a bit to North America relative to booking.com, which is more you know dispersed globally. And we think booking is just a better play from here. Does any of the price action within travel, I mean, not everywhere, but say in cruise lines, give you pause? It, it, it does, but, you know, the online names are a little bit different here. Um, you know, sometimes these names actually benefit when other areas of travel see some weakness because a lot of these suppliers will actually push more inventory to these online channels. And we think, you know, a booking into a lesser extent Expedia would benefit from that, whereas an Airbnb being solely focused on alternative accommodations maybe won't benefit from that same share shift. Trevor Young at Barclays on, on some travel names. Good day for it, Trevor. Thank you. Appreciate the time very much. Thank you very much. Up next, Google's App Store dominance comes under fire, losing an antitrust case against Fortnite maker Epic Games. What comes next in its court battle surrounding search and the ad businesses? We're going to discuss when Money Movers returns in two minutes. It's a big blow to Google and the power of its app store after this federal jury found that Google turned its Play Store and billing service into illegal monopolies. Our Deirdre Bosa has that story for today's Tech Check. Hey, Dean. Hey, Carl. Good morning. So for years, the tech giants, they have argued that their app store rules and restrictions they exist simply to benefit customers. This ruling chips away at that argument and challenges the idea of Google and Apple as gatekeepers. Epic CEO Tim Sweeney, he posted, victory over Google, free Fortnite. And the ruling quickly became a sort of rallying cry for others interested in cracking this duopoly. Anil Dash, CEO of Glitch, writing on threads, the app stores are cracking open. We are about to see the biggest reshuffling of power on the internet in 20 years. Meanwhile, the American, Liberty, American Economic Liberties project posting. The ruling's a big deal. The jury was readily able to call a spade a spade. And then there was Luther Lowe. He is a longtime critic of Google with Yelp and now leading public policy for Y Combinator. He posted both major Google antitrust cases this year put as much spotlight on Apple's bad behavior as they did Google. 
Apple, he says, is next over the barrel. And I'm going to be sitting down with Luther shortly to discuss the implications and what's next. Don't miss that interview coming up on Power Lunch. Now, the immediate implications are uncertain, and that's probably what the stock is reflecting, down less than one percentage point today. The judge in the case will decide on appropriate remedies next month, and Google has said that it will appeal. But it's not just the ruling that has the potential to damage moats here. It is the months of litigation that has revealed far more about the Google and Apple ecosystems than either company would like. Throughout the Epic trial, we learned that Google saw Epic Games as a contagion threat that could cost it $2 billion in revenue. We learned about secret deals between Google and Spotify, Google and Netflix and others, essentially destroying this notion that it treats developers equally. Epic versus Apple, it was just as damaging, even though Epic lost that one. We brought you an example yesterday, emails that revealed Apple decided not to integrate Android messaging to better lock in customers, protect that walled garden. Now, all of this amounts to an airing of big tech's dirty laundry that is now out there, guys, and could and likely will be weaponized by regulators, startups, rivals, in other battles that are on the horizon, like the much bigger search antitrust suit that will be in focus next year that Google will have to face. There's all of these sort of arguments and secrets out there that could be used in that trial. So if, if Epic ultimately prevails, even when Google challenges this, what sort of changes will Google have to make? That's put that in the uncertainty bucket, right? The judge in this case has said that he's not going to tell Google how much of a percentage fee it can charge for its app store. So we don't know yet. And I mean, when we look at sort of the history of antitrust regulation in the U.S. and how it's affected big tech, the answer is not much at all. Europe, as you know well, Sarah, has been more effective in sort of enacting some of this change. But I would say this year we saw a little bit of a shift. We see these smaller companies winning more battles, regulators moving a little quicker, even if they haven't actually won anything. But it's going to be a big, big test next year when some of these larger suits with the FTC and the DOJ come to trial. All right, Deirdre, thank you. Deirdre Bosa. Well, we've been following the fallout from the recent congressional hearings on anti-Semitism at colleges. An update just days after University of Pennsylvania President Liz McGill resigned. Harvard's board now out with a statement this morning in support of President Claudine Gay saying, quote, we reaffirm our support for President Gay's continued leadership of Harvard University. That's despite, of course, her heavily criticized testimony at the hearing where she struggled to clearly say whether calling for genocide of Jewish people violates Harvard's code of conduct, said it depends on the context, like the other presidents there. Um, and, and now I think we watch CNBC, we followed the money sort of on this story of what the, the donors do and some particularly vocal, I think, activists mm -hmm. calling for her resignation and calling for some sort of reexamination of moral clarity and DEI policies at some of these Universities. Yeah, definitely an examination of the donor base at Penn, for example, versus Harvard, and whether or not uh, that ch changes the outcome. We'll learn more about that uh, in the months to come, I imagine. Let's get to the half ahead of the Fed tomorrow. You haven't heard about the McCrispy yet? Well, then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard.